Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson, broadcast on WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, and now at 101.9 in Manchester, the Gate City. We're podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening on your personal digital device, please subscribe to the podcast and download us all the time. We're really happy to welcome a guest back to Beyond Politics, Josh Warren. He's a communications veteran among Democrats, and it sure seems like they need one right now. A former press secretary for the DCCC, that's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. He served as the national spokesman for Hillary Clinton in 2016 as the senior strategist and director of communications for Priorities USA, the biggest Democratic outside advocacy group and political action committee, where he played a big role in figuring out how to spend $153 million in advertising in the 2020 political cycle and what to say with all that money. He's also a veteran of the Terry McAuliffe political operation, which makes him the perfect person to talk about where we are now and what Democrats need to do in the coming year. Josh, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me back. So uh, let's jump right in with the question, burning question that Matt and I have been gesticulating about on the air and thinking about and talking about. But you're the guy with the deep, deep knowledge of Virginia and Terry McAuliffe. What happened on November 2nd and why did Terry McAuliffe and down ballot Democrats get pasted in Virginia? Well, it's not making news to say the political climate is uh, a bit challenging for Democrats right now. And I think this is the challenge is we lost in Virginia. We barely won in, in New Jersey. How do we take the right lessons from those? And one of the um, hard things to remember after a win or a loss is every winning campaign makes mistakes. Every losing can't. Well, most losing campaigns do some things right. And how do you figure out which of those is which? So if you look at McAuliffe in Virginia, Democratic turnout was record-breaking. It was significantly higher than in 2017 when we won in a relative landslide. And it wasn't enough because Republican turnout was that much higher. Some of that is due to demographic shifts. Some of that is due to McAuliffe's campaign actually getting Democrats out to vote, figuring out which of those and how do we replicate the good things he did, but then also addressing how we make up that gap with Republicans is, is the big question. And if you look at where we obviously, there's a lot, a lot of news in the suburbs and what the margins were in Northern Virginia, the differences are bigger in the exurbs. And then if you look at rural Virginia, that's where the margins really crushed us. And if we're losing 20 counties or more, 80, 20, we're just not going to win statewide elections. And I don't sit here with the answer to how do we win back rural voters, but that is one of the big questions for Democrats facing statewide races. It's less of an issue in house races given 
the way that the district, districts are drawn and, and where the battlefield is. But in the long term, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. So I think that's that's the big question for me is how do we win back those voters while also continuing to hold our gains or, or gain back the, the suburban voters who gave us wins the last five years? I mean, I really love what you said there about drawing the right lessons, because it's one of my criticisms of the way we do campaigns, both parties, by the way, both Republicans and Democrats. I mean, you have been in these rooms. You used to be the spokesperson for the the press secretary for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. This is the arm of the Democratic Party that supports all the House races, the U.S. House races. So, you know, you you look at a ton of races. And one thing that the D-trip, that we call it, the the, the DCCC never does is it never goes back and and does what you do in medicine. If you're a doctor, something goes bad, you have an M&M conference, a morbidity morbidity and mortality conference where you sit down and, you know, without like drumming anyone out of their profession, you say, all right, what went wrong? Let's take a clear-eyed look at this. Well, you know, both parties do you know, autopsies after the fact, but you never do this kind of specific race by race. Here are the things that we didn't do well, and we're going to do better next time. Here are the things that we did do well. And sometimes it's just this kind of gestalt thing where if a race goes well, you assume, and this is terrible logic, oh, we must have done the right things. Well, you know, as you just said, that's not necessarily true. You've probably done some right things. You've probably done some wrong things. And you don't know which of those things really contributed to winning and really did. But I, I, I think what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that it's equally important when you think about Virginia to look at New Jersey, because you saw almost the same increase in margin for Republicans in the legislature in both New Jersey and Virginia. That suggests that this is an overall wide ranging issue. So Democrats might perhaps then be wrong to freak out about the specific idiosyncratic issues in Virginia. Like, was this all about critical race theory? Uh, what you're, what it sounds like, what you're suggesting is no. There's a there's a deeper problem in the water here that has to do with Democrats did well turning out their voters. Republicans were just super fired up and massively turned out their voters. Look, I, I wish it were as simple as saying Terry had a bad line in the debate that was used against him, and that's why he lost. That would make it I mean, a lot he easier on the rest did. of it. Yeah, I mean that was that but would probably. If you if you, you look, but if you look at both the the managers or chief strategists for the two campaigns did a debrief with the Associated Press this week, and they both agree that that was not a make or break moment in the campaign. That it started before then. Uh, the McAuliffe team said. They had a five-point lead until we withdrew from Afghanistan. Then it went to about even. And that was the only time that there was a big shift. And the Yunkin team, by and large, agreed with that. Um, so I, I think, and then to the New Jersey point, we underperformed by more in New Jersey than, than in Virginia. We still won because of the differences in the states. So it's not, candidates absolutely matter. Campaigns absolutely matter. That was not the reason for winning and losing in these two states. And I think for Democrats to take the right lessons, we need to acknowledge the challenges that we have that are broader than one state or one campaign and work to address them. Um, 
And I think today's inflation data is helping clarify that a bit for people, but it's a bigger issue. We have to uh, acknowledge that there is still dissatisfaction out there and we can't just put our head down and keep doing what we're doing. Well, you know, people thought that <clears throat> that uh, old Joe would come in and make everything smooth, that he would uh, he would just smooth over all the rough edges that Trump left, that he would bring people together with the folksy approach. Come on, folks. Hey, come on. I'm Joe and uh, Joe Biden. And uh, come on, it's all good. You know, we can make this happy, happy, happy time. And um, unfortunately, the, you've got the, the specter of a Democratic Party, which um, has circled its wagons and pulled out the howitzers uh, to, for each other. And, and that has been played relentlessly in the media. So the political environment for Democrats haven't been helped by Democrats, which is the usual case with Democrats. It, it just that we seem to you know, we follow the Will Rogers principles. I've said many times, I'm, <clears throat> I, I I don't belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat. Now, with that, that with with that very um, trenchant observation in place, you spent um, uh, with uh, Priorities USA uh, as much as any single entity on the Democratic side in 2020, besides the president's campaign itself. What do you think worked in 2020? I mean, besides the fact that that a, a large number of people really hated Donald Trump, um, including suburban women and Republicans of conscience and maybe even some current Republicans. Who knows? They, they didn't like Trump. And after all, he did come pretty close to holding on to that office. Um, not by the steel efforts, but just by the vote efforts. Was there any particular thing that you and other Democratic campaigns did that was especially effective that you can point to that say that says to you now as a consultant and specialist, here's here's what we know worked. It worked in 2020 uh, when the environment was not maybe not quite what it is today, but still pretty toxic. But I mean, the problem is there are a few things that definitely worked that are not, cannot be replicated now. Donald Trump was in office. Republicans were badly uh, mismanaging the pandemic. People were, and, and making it worse by their actions and people were dying by the thousands. Some of that is still happening, but they're not in power anymore. And it very much was a referendum on Donald Trump. Biden did what he needed to do, and he was a good option for voters. But I don't think Joe Biden would tell you that this was a like this was a referendum on Biden, right? It was it was about Donald Trump, and we needed a good option, uh, and Biden provided that good option, that good alternative. And honestly, he's being productive, and it, we're going to look back and say, "Oh my God, I can't believe Biden accomplished as much as he did in this first term in office." I mean, these are monumental bills that he's passing, and it's hard to stop and, and realize that, but he is getting a lot done despite Democrats loudly negotiating with each other. But I think looking back, the other thing that we, until the pandemic and, and even during the pandemic, we focused on 
what voters were feeling. And we had to combat Trump out there every day saying we have record high um, stock market, your 401ks are doing great. Um, look at look at how much businesses are making, right? He talked every day about how great the economy was and ignored the fact that people were still struggling. And if you polled people, they would say the cost of healthcare is going up, the cost of education is going up, the cost of you name it, every important thing was increasing. And we, we focused on that until we were focusing on the horrible job that Trump was doing managing the pandemic. We can't forget that. It's a lot harder when you're in power to acknowledge how people are struggling. Um, but also we need to take some lessons from Trump in touting the good things that we're doing. We don't need to be quite as egotistical about it as he was, but we as Democrats tend to be shy about bragging about our work. And we want to acknowledge that we hear you and we feel your pain. And we should, and that, that makes us who we are and it's important, but we have to be balancing the empathy with being cheerleaders for ourselves a little bit more. And so I think there's, we need to figure out how to dual track, celebrating the strength of the job market, the economy. Things are actually for the top line numbers going pretty well without dismissing the really the real concerns and pain that, that people are feeling when they're just trying to go through their daily lives with, with costs rising. And so that doesn't mean dismissing one or the other because you lose if you ignore one of those two things. Uh, and it's a challenge to balance them. But that's, I think, Trump only did the cheerleading and didn't do it the empathy. Uh, we need to be able to do both. Well, I mean, that's a really interesting point because we actually talked about this on the show this week that there is such a disconnect. There was actually a great article on this, the New York Times by Neil Irwin. It was a phenomenal economics reporter, but has a really good sense of the political psychology of economics. And, you know, what we're seeing is, yes, inflation is high. It's not historically high. It's just high compared to where it's been. Economists say, okay, it's, it's transitory. It's gonna, it, it's coming. We know the factors that are leading to it. It's heavily influenced by energy. We know what is causing that. So we think that's going to evaporate. And by the way, people are, you know, they're doing great. They're flush with cash. People have $1.8 trillion that they didn't have in their savings. The median savings has gone up in, in America substantially over the last two years. People have a lot more money. They have jobs if they want them because it's a super hot job market. And wages are up 5% year on year. And so, yes, you're right. From the top line, the economy is doing great, but people aren't perceiving it that way. And we think it's largely because of inflation. So that does leave Democrats in a tricky position. And maybe there's a way to walk that tightrope and say to people, we, we, we feel you, we feel you. It, it, it feels pretty cruddy when prices are going up, but there's a ton of good news you know, we're going in the right direction. Maybe we could walk that line. But, but in the New York Times this week, former Bill Clinton pollster Mark Penn, he's a little controversial in Democratic circles, argued that that's not going to cut it. That kind of tightrope walking about an economic message isn't even close. And that what Joe Biden needs to do now to give Democrats a fighting chance in 2022 is to take the Virginia and New Jersey results to heart and do a 1994 
Bill Clinton style pivoting course correction and get boldly centrist, if not conservative, on issues like immigration, really slowing his role on climate, and generally, for lack of a better word and bringing back a 90s term, triangulating, not lining up with the progressives so much, playing off the Trump base against the, against the progressives and kind of being in the middle where the bulk of the American populace resides politically. What do you make of that? Does Joe Biden and does the Democratic Party need to undertake that kind of a more fundamental course correction? It's interesting because where the bulk of the American people are is not where Penn is saying that Biden should go. The bulk of the American people are to the left on immigration of where the current legislation is uh, for Build Back Better. A vast majority of Americans want citizenship and we're not on track to be able to deliver that. The, the things in the reconciliation package, the individual pieces have overwhelming support. This is where the American people are. And we need to not shy away from that. Um, that Mark Penn is not looking out for Democrats. That's not his, his thing anymore. Um, perhaps it was 30 years ago. I think we need to deliver on the promises that we made to voters. And Joe Biden said he was going to do all those things when he won the election with a large majority of the popular vote and obviously won the Electoral College. So no, I, do, I don't agree with him. I think we need to deliver with solutions and make sure that people know that we're doing it. So if you look at inflation, talk about how if we have universal pre-K, it's going to lower the cost of childcare, right? This is gonna save people money. It's wildly popular. Um, we need to be doing that. We don't need to be pulling back and limiting ourselves. So I, I, I strongly disagree with him. And I think it willfully ignores where where the American people are on these issues. Um, and that's where we need to be is, is stick with the popular solutions that we have that we wanna fight for uh, and that Biden was elected to, to pursue. Well, and of course he puts in his article, the uh, it's, it's like a throwaway line. It's like, you know, the American population is 40% Democrat, 40%, you know, the 40% Republican kind of died in the wool and 20% is a swing vote. That seems like a pretty dated piece of uh, analysis to me. The estimates I've seen, and I, I don't know if this lines up with what you saw at Priorities or uh, any of your other previous work, is that you're talking about like six to 9% of the voting electorate is in that swing category. They really could go either way. It, it is absolutely a, a shrinking population. Um, so and yeah. we do need to care about them. I want to push back a little bit in a in a gentle and kind way as a former member of Congress who sat through meetings with Nancy Pelosi, basically turning her nose up at the idea of messaging and and uh, knowing that the 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 experts in the House of Representatives who were thinking about how to create a cohesive message that would work for Democrats involved getting a bunch of staffers, uh, consultants, a Democrat has-beens 
in a room and asking them what they thought about Democrats and what Democrats ought to do and fancy consultants, uh, all of whom were being paid huge amounts of money to talk about issues. And if we only did what we're doing and do it better and help the American people understand how good we are for them. And boy, isn't that really going to do it? We just have to keep on doing what we're doing because we can persuade the American people by telling them that what we're doing is good for them. And, and they'll believe us because we've told them and we're so smart and so intellectually adept that our persuasive words, those 12 syllable semantics we use to explain and explain and explain why we're doing such a good job will persuade the voters. I say raspberry, I say, Kaka, I say that is not working. So we talked about um, some of, uh, in answer to Matt's question about Mark Penn's, we need a Clinton course correction. And you properly, properly said, well, maybe not a Clinton-esque triangulation. But come on, doesn't the Democratic Party have a brand problem? Isn't it like Madison Avenue time for Democrats? Isn't it time that Democrats understand that generally over the past, what, decade, people have not been very kind about Democrats. Republicans held their noses and voted for Joe Biden because Trump was so bad. But in an era when, well, who knows, Trump may still be indicted, God help us, um, uh, but but Trumpism is alive and, and well, and still voters have ignored January 6th. They've ignored the good things Biden has done. They don't feel better about Democrats. We've had David Shur on the show saying basically, hey, yeah, liberal values are alien to swing voters. We're bleeding conservative Latino voters and swing voters because of it. They're all about anti-choice and guns and keep the immigrants out. And we're all at least in the media, AOC and Bernie Sanders say, saying, spend more trillions of dollars. And I'm not going to vote for anything Democratic because uh, I'm a progressive. And therefore, I can just uh, keep on, you know, trying to torpedo all the Democratic efforts. So don't we have, as a party, a deep, long-term, fundamental brand problem that says we're a bunch of infighting wusses who can't get it together? Yes. I mean, that, right. Like, of course, we have a brand problem. And if you go out and ask voters, what do Republicans stand for? What do Democrats stand for? Republicans get a much clearer answer for better or worse. And Democrats, you get a million different things because no one knows what we stand for. Should we do the Republican one just as a, as a social experiment? Let's let's all do this together. Low taxes, taxes strong defense, defense family, conservative values. social values. And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay, that was clear. Now, right. two Democrats. Fuzzy Wuzzy no was a bear. Fuzzy Wuzzy had no hair. <laughs> fuzzy Wuzzy wasn't very fuzzy, was he? But he was a Democrat. So, yes, of course we have a branding problem. And I I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who honestly disagrees with that. Um, they might publicly disagree. But, yes, of course. I think part of that is because Republicans are much more homogenous and it is easier to please their members. And honestly, right now they don't care about policy. Um, you don't have to look any further than them disowning house members for voting for transportation funding 
or infrastructure funding. Um, which death is threats by, death threats, by the way, yeah. for voting for transportation funding, which is something Mitch McConnell voted for. Right. Like this is not a uh, left wing fringe issue that they're freaking out about. <laughs> bridges, <laughs> roads and bridges, roads and bridges are a left wing fringe issue. Apparently. Fix the potholes. But like I, I'm glad that our party is diverse with diverse interests and is a big tent party um, and we're not the Republicans. That does make it harder to define us. It does make it harder to have a clear bumper sticker brand, right? That doesn't excuse the fact that we have a garbage brand. Um, that doesn't mean anything to anyone, but it is a challenge. Part of our problem is that we've been making promises to all these different constituencies for years and never delivering or rarely delivering. And if you're someone who has heard from elected Democrats or candidates, yes, we're going to deliver on your issue, just elect us. And then time and again, we don't. Yeah, we're going to start losing your votes. We can't take you for granted. And we do. And so I think Yes, the answer is not to keep doing what we've been doing and just do it better. Of course, that's not the answer. But delivering on our promises is absolutely part of it. And that doesn't necessarily help give us a one sentence description of our party, but it does help please the people who voted for us for a reason and then didn't get the results that they were hoping for and now are open to change. Right. Like if you keep having change elections because voters want something and then don't get it, maybe we should try giving it to them. And that's that's what the the news coverage for the past three months has all been Democrats fighting with each other over these massive pieces of legislation. I do think getting it done and explaining it is critically important because this is it's not everything to everyone, but it is a lot of the things that we've been talking about for years, for decades, and reasons why people have voted for us in the past and are being um, are are less interested in supporting Democrats because they feel like we've been making broken promises uh, or promises we can't keep. And so, yes, I do think part of it is we need to actually deliver in ways that people feel and then make sure that they know it was us because for too long we haven't. Um, so we will never have the conservative media ecosystem that drives the narrative, um, that, that we want. It's not how our side of the thing of the aisle works. So that makes it harder to communicate. And we have a diverse group of communicators and interests that all want to voice their opinion for good reason and voice their interests for good reason. And that makes it harder to, um, boil that down into one coherent message. But I do think we are at a moment where we have the ability to deliver on some of these very popular promises that will make a difference in people's lives for a long time to come. And then we can message against Republicans who are trying to take those away. So, and that's a lot easier. It is much easier to sell, I, I hate that this is true, but it is much easier to sell anger and fear than it is to sell aspiration and doing your job well. Well, you know, it doesn't even it doesn't even have to be anger and fear, right? I mean, we know psychologically that loss aversion is a thing. Mm -hmm. People value there's a ton of studies that back this up. People value something that might get taken away from them a lot more than the potential to gain. So it's awfully hard. 
And I think this goes to your point. I, I, I think that a number of people have been arguing Democrats should not rely on build back better as some kind of a political silver bullet that's going to solve all their 2022 problems, because they're still going to be in the position of running on in the future, you may gain this. People won't feel it. They won't have imbibed it. They won't believe it. Only 13% of voters or something believe that Build Back Better is not going to raise their taxes, which is clearly not true. So, I mean, they're, just the expectation has to be very different. In five years, that's going to change, just like we saw with the ACA, because then it'll be a matter of taking things away. But I'm digressing. I'm digressing. I, but I, I, I do want to jump go, in there because this is a big difference from, and I don't have to tell the two of you about what it was like in 2010, but- Yeah, let's not ACA, talk about that. <laughs> ACA was wildly unpopular from the start, right? Like I was working for a blue dog in the house and he was on the fence about what to do on, on the Affordable Care Act. And one of the things we knew was- if you vote for this, you might lose your seat. It is horribly unpopular in our district. He ended up voting for it because he thought it was the right thing to do and was comfortable with whatever political repercussions there may be. And I haven't talked to him about it recently, but I'm pretty sure he would still be thrilled that he was part of that. But we knew it was a loser politically in the near term. This is actually popular today. So yes, there are challenges to selling it if we pass it, but it is very much not the same situation as we were in 2010 or 2009 with healthcare. Well, and and let's follow up on that point and the point you were making a moment ago. You were saying that Democrats might have to change some things in their approach. And also that, look, because of the way the media environment operates and the different dynamics between the two parties, they're not mirror images of each other. They're different. They're Republicans are kind of built around a cohesive demographic and ideological, to some extent, identity. And Democrats are a coalition of, of different interest groups and demographics. And that's that's a good thing. We like that. But given that baseline reality, you have done a ton of work in your career on both creating organic, what you might call earned media messages, and also on paid political advertising, running ads. You deployed $153 million worth in the last political cycle. So I wanted to ask you about that particular aspect of what we do in campaigns. Do you think we've hit the limit of what can be achieved in campaigns with more advertising, slicker advertising, better advertising, better taglines. Do you think that, and I, I know I'm leading the witness here, but do you think given, given the limitations that you were just describing, do you think that groups like Priorities USA and other outside groups, maybe even the Democratic Party itself, should refocus some of their money and some of their effort on maybe less political advertising during the campaign after Labor Day in a kind of traditional way, and more on efforts like voter registration and off-year mobilization and engagement that's not part of the political cycle? Unfortunately, it's, it's not an either or. It's a yes and. We have not reached the limit to what we can do with paid advertising. It may, we have to do different advertising. And as people evolve and where they get their information, where they're spending their time, we need to evolve with them. And the answer is not always just, we need another thousand points of TV. 
But yes, I mean, of course we have to do more organizing, more voter registration and more all of the above. The problem is because we don't have Fox and we can use Virginia as a great example of this, where Glenn Youngkin didn't have to talk about Trump and drive the conservative issues because Fox was doing it for him every day, because they had the top 10 most shared articles on Facebook every week are all conservative, 90% of them are conservative leaning or hard right leaning material. That's happening for him. The campaign didn't have to do it. We don't have that. We have to pay to get our information in front of people. And that doesn't mean the like traditional, necessarily this, the traditional bio TV spots or the scary negative spots, but you're seeing more and more people spending money on Google search results people promoting news articles into Facebook feeds. We have to figure out what the next thing is because digital advertising is out of date every six months as the rules change. But we can't say there's not actually a finite amount of money in politics right now. And that's a problem. We need to change that. But with the with online fundraising going the way it is, there is always more money. And unfortunately, we need to spend more of it as terrible as that is and as like fundamentally opposed to more money in politics as I am and I think many Democrats are. The short term solution is we need to be spending more and we need to spend it in more different ways. And that is that's not again, that's not the traditional doesn't that doesn't mean keep doing what we're doing, but do it better. That means be innovative, do more, spread it out. But we can't ignore the fact that. Republicans have quote unquote free earned media opportunities that we just don't have and we have to pay to make it happen. And honestly, like the with local news dying and cable the way it is, we're not going to be able to get the media to cover it in a, in a sufficient way to make that not necessary. Well, for our listeners out there, we're covering it. We're doing it. We are. We are the left-leaning voice of uh, democratic values. We, Wait here, a second. Here, we're it? <laughs> this is, yeah, and we're there it. There you go. Somewhere Jamie Harrison just let out a long sigh and put his yeah. head in his no, hands. This, this is it. Matt Robeson, you are the Rush Limbaugh of the left. Oh, you, please. You are personally <laughs> responsible for, for getting the democratic message out there to combat the conservative onslaught of media. And look, look, Rachel Maddow is, is staying at MSNBC, right? So why isn't that enough? I mean, isn't Fox, aren't people just tired of Fox? Well, no, they're not tired of Fox. And aren't people just getting off Facebook in droves because they're such a such a bad company? Well, no. So given the environment we face, outgunned by the media, suffering from a fuzzy wuzzy brand that nobody can really identify, um, straining to explain to people that we really have produced results. I mean, look, we, we, we're giving you roads and bridges and filling your potholes. What more do you want? Um, and Joe Biden is so much kinder and gentler than, than Donald Trump. And look at, come on, people, come by. Uh. So given all that, what can Democrats do over the next year? How do Democrats give themselves a chance in the 2022 midterms. What do we do, Josh? I mean, it's all on you. 
right? You are the strategist. You are the consultant of consultants. You are the guru of winning campaigns. Tell us, oh, wise one, what do we do? Well, that's easy. <laughs> Look, I, yeah, hire me. Yeah, exactly. No, I, it's a challenge. I'm not going to lie, right? Like, and then we're at a point where our democracy is under attack and we can win elections and it doesn't, right? Like there are, there are bigger issues than the next election, which is scary to think about, but we need to, and I'll, I'll go back to, to what we discussed before, but we need to show voters that we are both delivering for them and working to solve the problems that they face in their daily lives. And that's not the, it's not always the existential threat of Donald Trump and what he's going to do to our democracy. It's how do you fill up your car with gas and put food on the table? And if we are not talking about that, we're not going to win these voters because they they'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. They need to think about today. And if they go to the grocery store and they feel like it costs them 50% more than it did a week ago, then they want change. And you can see we're sitting on Twitter mocking reporters who are talking about 12 gallons of milk and going to the wrong gas station. But groceries are getting more expensive and gas is getting more expensive. And sure, we can like make fun of people for using outlier examples, but then we miss the bigger problem and we need to be addressing that bigger problem and solving it while at the same time talking about all of the good things and how well the country is doing relative to when Donald Trump was in power. And hey, remember, Donald Trump's probably going to run again for president and the entire Republican Party supports him and they're trying to make abortion illegal. So we're doing good things. They want to do bad things. It kind of boils down to that and we feel your pain, right? Uh, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that and hard to deliver those messages. But hey, if there's one thing we could do is we can definitely make things a lot more complicated for Democrats. <laughs> we're good at that. That's for sure. Well, I, I always joke that uh, Democrat is a Greek word that means repeats facts smugly. Um, so look, Josh, you've you've actually passed in the last year or two your decade mark of doing what you do at the highest level. I'm not including your job experience before that, but you were in Congress. You went to the, I'll, I'll use the buzz term, the DCCC. You work for Terry McAuliffe, you work for Hillary Clinton, you work for the number one outside advocacy group. You're, you know, you're, you, you've been in this work for a long time now. So here's, here's a question for you. Any lessons learned about what works and what doesn't that you'd like to go back in time in a hot tub time machine and tell younger you from 10 years ago? Or... Is social media and technology and the whole media landscape changing so much so fast that today's lessons aren't even that relevant to circa 2009 Josh Warren? I mean, I would love to go back and tell myself to take Donald Trump more seriously from the start, but I'm not sure that's what you're looking for. Yeah, it has changed. The job I was doing in 2010 is pretty obsolete now. I didn't have a Twitter account when I was a communications director in the house. I think my our office didn't have a Twitter account. And now Twitter is like how you communicate with reporters. Um, and in 10 years, it'll be something we haven't thought of. There's not something worse, I hope. 
Oh, I'm sure it'll be worse. Is anything getting better? <laughs> no. It'll be the metaverse, right? Um, I think the one of the challenges right now, and we'll see if this, which I definitely didn't understand when I worked in a house office or even at the DCCC, and we'll see if it's still true in 10 years, is it is harder and harder to differentiate yourself from the national environment. And being able to say, okay, I had this vote that I opposed my party on, voters are going to appreciate me and keep me there. Voters aren't paying attention anymore. And I, I think the 30,000 foot, do I like the direction of your party because you're part of it question is a much more important one than I acknowledged 10 years ago. Um, and I'm not sure how much of that is me not realizing or the world changing, but I think we have to realize that the all politics is local is no longer true. And that that's sort of hard when you are focused on one individual race or especially if you're a candidate, right? But I, I think that's not where we are right now and maybe it'll go back there at some point, but everything is global, if not national. That actually, I just have to say, hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'll tell you why. It's because everything that I learned in that time frame that you're talking about, when I was also on Capitol Hill, was all about, you know, I was work, I was used to working for people in tough districts, right? Marginal districts, we used to call them frontline members. Paul was one of them. And everything we learned was you do everything, all the local events. We had Paul pumping people's gas and, you know. That didn't go too well. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, there was another cycle. Anyway, we just, you do everything. And we really believed that on the margin that mattered. It's, it's a kind of depressing thought that maybe it doesn't. On the other hand, Josh, I you have still got to say, do it. You still well, got to yeah. do it. Yes. Still got to do it. But I find the rest of what you're saying kind of uplifting and inspirational. There is, there is a pathway. There is stuff we can do. There's stuff we can say. And on that happy note, I think we have to leave it there because we've hit the end of our show. For Paul Hodes, former Congressman Paul Hodes, for Josh Schwerin, and for me, Matt Robeson, thank you for listening to Beyond Politics. We will see you again next week.